Hello, welcome to the Cunning Plan podcast. I'm here with my good friend Miles. Um, this is the second time. Um, if you're wondering, well, no, you wouldn't be wondering it now, but later, later you'll be wondering why was Miles wearing different clothes? Not just Miles, me as well. Why are they wearing different clothes at the beginning than they were at the end? And the reason for that is because we recorded an intro for this earlier um, and we deleted it. It got, deleted. it got deleted. Yeah. The computer deleted it. We didn't delete it. I mean, we, we know what we're doing. We're not Muppets. Um, but it was, you know, mistakes. Mistakes were made. People were disciplined. <laughs> um, I don't think it's going to happen again. That's. It wasn't me, by the way. It wasn't. It wasn't Miles. It wasn't Miles' fault. Um, but anyway, here we are. So we're doing the intro again. It was a, the last intro was very good, so this has got a Probably lot... Probably better than this is going to be. To be no, well, let's, let's, let, um, let's let history be the judge of that, right. shall we? So anyway, here we are. Sorry for the rambling. We're here today to talk about typography. Mm. Um, a couple of weeks ago, it was a little while ago now actually, we did a presentation. I say we did a presentation. Uh, Miles did a presentation on typography, trying to help everyone get a better handle and a better understanding on fonts and how fonts are made up and how you use type in an efficient way so that what was the kind of what was the reason behind wanting to do a, a presentation of this sort uh, I think at the time or since then we've had a lot of uh, typography, typography projects that have come in a lot of uh, design projects that involved a lot of type a lot of body copy a lot of titles and stuff like that so we just I think Chris who's our creative director is really good um, at setting out type and his knowledge of type is uh, and layout and composition is really good, and I think Chris just wanted to up my levels, um, up my skill levels on that sort of stuff. Um, and oh, you and Chris wanted me to up that, so I had to go back and learn some of the theory. Uh, so we went over quick brief uh, history of typography, uh, the terminology, the technology, uh, some of the where the fonts originated, and then in learning this sort of stuff, you get to just sharpen skills going forward and you know why things do certain things and why you should lay them out in certain ways certain uh, philosophies in type and stuff like that cool yeah it's a, I mean it's a it's a really interesting presentation um, do you know do take the time to uh, to have a good listen to it um, if you're listening then it's well worth watching some of the slides as well that Mars designed there's some great slides in there we're also going to put it up on, on a slide share as well so you can download those slides and have a look at them properly and everything like that um, it's a really interesting presentation and, and really made me certainly think about the way we use type and the way we, how we choose our fonts and, and what makes for a good bit of type and what makes for not a particularly good bit of type there's a few great font-based gags in there as well. Mm-hmm. Keep an eye out for those, some, uh, some quality stuff. So. Yeah. Well, without further ado, um, enjoy the presentation. Enjoy. So um, I'm doing a presentation on typography, hence the shirt. Um, yeah, so I'm just going to go through <laughs> a few basics on uh, typography. So the origins of type. Um, a very important figure uh, was this a guy called uh, Gutenberg in 14, uh, 1445. Uh, he invented a movable wooden type box uh, to print type in for various things, mainly the Bible, really. Um, before him, it was just monks and scribes that were able to write. Um, and this, this meant that like literature was basically just for the rich and educated, which was yeah, which was a problem. So it was only the the hierarchy, uh, the higher class that were able to read and write, really. Um, so that was before Gutenberg. And Gutenberg, uh, Gutenberg came in and sort of changed the game. He created uh, wooden blocks of 
print, which meant you could do you could mass produce a lot of things. At the time, it was mainly Bibles that were big, that were big, they were bestsellers. So yeah, so Gutenberg's uh, Bibles were sold cheaply due to effectiveness uh, of the movable wooden type. And by the 15th century, it had taken over uh, Europe. Europe it, it just spread across Europe. Uh, a lot of the fonts back then were based on the actual monks and the scribes' uh, hand writing. So that was called uh, black letter. Uh, it was very blocky, very based on uh, calligraphy, so a lot of ink blotches and stuff like that. wasn't particularly nice, but uh, got the job done. It was around this time as well that uh, a guy called Jensen uh, invented something called Roman type, which is based on, he worked out of Italy, uh, and it was based on the type that was found on the buildings, in, like the old Roman buildings. So they were long, thin letters, a lot more legible, uh, and this sort of got introduced into the, the wood printing uh, and into the Bible, just so legibility. So that spread, spread even further, really. Um, it sort of rode the wave of the Renaissance, this wooden print. So as the Renaissance sort of spread across Europe, so did the print, and they sort of tied hand in hand with the spreading of. So as as the Renaissance rose, so did the spreading of the Bible, sort of adding fuel to the fire, really, the whole thing. So that was like a major development in uh, the early 15th century. Um, and technology-wise, everything sort of stayed stagnant up until the 18th century. So the early 18th century, um, like I said, the technology became quite stagnant uh, up until this point. Um, and then in 1822, uh, metal print was introduced. Uh, a lot of fonts that are used today, like Dido and Bodoni, were actually uh, designed in 1830. It's amazing to think that Bodoni was designed in 1813 when it's still used today for a major Major campaigns, really. Um, yeah, so the wooden the wooden press changed to metal press, um, and there was the introduction of uh, lithography, um, which is a heated metal print. Um, and around this time as well was the first uh, steam steam powered press that was able to print a record four hundred and eighty copies per hour, uh, and then. Again, this sort of kept building, and as all this sort of stuff's going on, you are getting the odd bit of design, type design, uh, throughout Europe. Um, but nothing of real importance up until 1886, really, uh, when the lithotype machine was invented. And this was a uh, set type. And this was a printing press, uh, hot metal, like I said. Um, and as this was growing, uh, the Industrial Revolution and this, as with the Renaissance, they sort of uh, helped each other. So as the um, as uh, technology and industry rose, so did uh, typography, obviously, increasing society uh, through communications and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. So the thing to get through both the last two slides is that everything that was sort of happening in the world seemed to be fueled by uh, the advancement of type as well, which was. Uh, and then, in the early uh, 20th century, we started to see a lot more creativity. So houses such as the Bell House, which is um, a legendary art and design school, which sort of combined various, a lot of schools across Europe with just teaching art or design. Uh, Bell House uh, combined the two and liked to teach the students uh, about technology and new technologies and stuff. Um, so they were very important in 
a lot of expressionism and stuff like that in the early 1900s. So type was mainly seen as um, a tool to read stuff, or a tool for legibility, whereas in the early 20th century with the arts, it started to become a bit more flamboyant. Uh, and we started to see movements such as, such as in the bottom left, there are examples of, on the right, that's Russian constructivism, and on the left is um, an aspect of Swiss design. So these two were legendary like, movements within design that people still got in today and they've influenced design throughout today. Yeah, so as, as this sort of developed, um, between, I'd say, the early 20th century and now, there's a, a big hotbed for, uh, for design, and then obviously in uh, 1990, roughly that time, um, you've got digital design that really took off, uh, desktop design and digital printing as well, which sort of, again, fuels the fire on the digital design front. This is, um, so I'm going to be talking about um, the intricacies of certain typefaces. So just odd terminologies that I thought I'd explain to you really before I get into them. So this is like the, uh, the, atom, the autonomy of typography. Uh, here we've got three major categories really. Three of the major categories. You've got the bottom one, uh, that's a serif type. The top one is a sans serif type and the middle is an italic type. Um, so just stuff to notice really, like the talking descenders, which is the bottom half of the P, and the ascenders, which would be like the top half of the, top half of the T. Uh, a downward thing, a downward stem is like the long one like this. Um, the X height, makes sense, is the height of the X in the alphabet, uh, which obviously varies depending on the type. Um, and the leading is from the baseline, which is the bottom of the X height, to the top of the top of uh, to the next bottom of the X type. So I think a lot of this terminology has been lost, to be honest, uh, just because of digital um, design and how easy it is to do all this sort of stuff. So designers don't really need to know what like the terminal. They don't really need to know what a counter is. They don't need to know all this sort of stuff. All they need to know is the kerning, the leading, and the type size, just because it's a clickable to so now we're going to move on uh, to the space between the notes. Um, what I mean by this, advertising created a need for new typefaces as the print and digital print became bigger. Uh, new fonts were needed. We needed bigger fonts, wider fonts, smaller fonts, and the um, like. The a lot of like I said before, a lot of the phrases that and terminologies that were used in this back in the day for uh, original printing that have been kept today. Leading, for example, um, is the actual process of putting lead bars between the types. So you would have a block of type, a lead bar, and then a block of type. So leading, that's where leading came from. So in terms of leading, obviously leading can uh, affect legibility, readability, and um, how, how a message is perceived and stuff like that. It's too cramped, you can't read it. So the leading refers to baseline to baseline. As we said before, that's the like the bottom line of the text. And there's a couple of rules. Rules of thumb. Oh, back in the day when they were using actual lead, there's a couple of rules of thumb uh, for legging. Um, so if, if your type was 10 point, then um, you would normally have a legging of 11 point, which meant the height of your text plus one lead. So that's, that's, so that's called 10 over 11. Nowadays, because it's as easy as pushing a button, it's um, it's, yeah, these rules are good. So again, we're going to go on to uh, other 
terminologies that have kept on. This is a French word, so I don't know if you've seen it. Um, yeah, so phrases like the cloning and uh, tracking. This one, the numbers one specifically, but I've put in there for Chris because he is adamant that zeros, ones, and twos are the worst cloned uh, characters in the alphabet. I mean, if you look closely, you can you can see a difference. And I think it, the thing is, if you, if you don't, don't notice it, you're not going to see it. If you do notice it, it makes a massive difference to how nice. Uh, uh, the type books, I think, which is important really. Good type goes unnoticed and bad type, which the top line is sticks out like a sore thumb, a sore thumb I think. So the, the idea of kerning is that every, uh, every character should have uh, an equal spacing between, uh, between each character, between each letter. Now that sounds good in theory, uh, but if you think of certain pairings like an A and a V, you're going to have to kern that a lot closer to give the, to give the effect, otherwise you just have a lot of negative space in there. Um, so that's, kerning is individual uh, space between individual pairs and individual letters, and you've got tracking, which is uh, the space over a, over a word, so that's the space in between everyone. So now we're going to pose the question, what is typography? Quite choose the other here, but typography is power. So typography is the power to communicate words and ideas and visual. Uh, it's timeless. I think a key a key thing that I enjoy about type is uh, its pull on society and its effect that it has on society, people and messages that it tries to communicate. I think that's a big thing that goes unnoticed if you consider the journey that type has been on from wooden blocks to being on the side of a hill in Hollywood and it's almost taken for granted how powerful type actually is. Um, and it's all around us, many different forms. Um, yeah, so the after what is the typography, who handles typography is the next question. So what is a typography? So a typography handles typography. Is that um, yeah. So a typography is someone who is sensitive to the different forms of type. Sensitive to how type conveys a message, interacts with its environment, but also affects the reader, also its effect on the reader. So this is, um, these are pinnacle examples really of how type can affect a society and shape society. Different examples of how it can move people, uh, certain emotional conversations, and sometimes pioneer change, which in this uh, ship of fairy, um, I'll bet they did for Barack Obama, I think that was one of the key reasons it sort of, obviously, he's not going to take full credit for it, but I think he deserves um, hats off for the artwork, to be honest, which he got sued for, but they, um, so this, the Brooklyn Bridge is um, Helvetica, used by Massimo Vignelli, and we're going to hear from him again later on, um, and he uh, implemented Helvetica into uh, the subway station in New York. Now he's a bit of an odd one really because he uses three fonts. Uh, he's a designer but he uses three fonts and really doesn't like the idea that type is expressive. Um, but he chose that he, he chose it just because of our beautiful Helvetica if you like. Uh, and we've got the bottom left which is uh, a nice brush of today's talk. You're looking at that black polar. Um, and Saul Bass is the man with the golden arm. He's one of my favourite um, graphic designers. I think all of these sort of show how they can affect 
the industry they're in. Soulbats actually changed uh, the animation and the movie industry through his uh, expressive type and um, like the idents into films and Netflix and stuff like that. He was, yeah, he, he, he's a motive and playful type, sort of really changed the game in terms of animation. So all these are, all the, the example that you're trying to get from this is uh, how design can move people uh, and it has emotional connotations, which leads us nicely on to the crowd participation. Oh no, it Sorry. Uh, we talk about uh, a graphic designer from London uh, called Neville Brody, uh, who I really like this phrase. Um, it's a typography as a hint or manipulation within society. Now, it does sound pretty sinister, uh, and the uh, picture doesn't help. But, uh, to me, uh, Brody is alluding to something that is paramount in typography, and that is the reader's experience. Uh, I believe that typefaces uh, have a personality. They can be traditional, modern, romantic, serious, or it can also be emotive, personal, and reminders of the past. So that was a nice little bit of crowd participation. If anyone is still awake, can anybody identify this font? I guarantee that all of you have seen this font at some point in your life. It looks a bit like the font that like, Roald Dahl works out with Quentin um, Blake uses. Yeah. Good job! <laughs> <laughs> so that is right, the, uh, that font is uh, synonymous really with the Roald Dahl books. Um, and I'm glad someone got that, because otherwise I'll write on Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but whenever I see that font, I automatically think of the, the twist and the beard and just having those stuff in it, but it sort of has an emotive effect, takes you back. So it sort of trans transcends what it actually is, and that is uh, just what is on the page. Now this was, um, I think this was rightly or wrongly recognised um, by uh, David Williams. Um, don't know whether the book's good, but it, he sort of clocks onto a winning formula, I think. Uh, and it just goes to show how the type can complement A, the block colour behind, uh, B, the sort of, sort of story and message it's saying, which is um, a nice kid's story, but C, also the uh, pictures or illustrations that surround it. Uh, I think if you remove any one thing, then it wouldn't look as good as it does. Uh, neither, and I think it's quite a savvy thing to do, because I reckon Mr. Stink wouldn't have done as well if, if it didn't uh, follow that formula, because um, it gives the reader uh, nostalgia and already a sense of attachment to the book. So now we've established that uh, uh, fonts can have a certain personality. Um, I'm just going to take you through specifically the five main categories of fonts. Um, firstly, I'm going to talk to you about serif. So serif fonts were um, like the very much based on uh, Handwriting and calligraphy style uh, is it? It's a calligraphy style font. That's where you get these little feet that poke out the end of every letter. Um, they're called serifs. These little feet, and this is a bracket that brings it down. So it's it's nicely done. That font is basketball. Sorry, I've just lost my That font is called is uh, basketball. Um, what's nice about that font? I've chosen this font because. 
I like the way it's quite rounded, but also has squared off terminals, which is the end of the uh, serif. But uh, in terms of in terms of the examples that I've chosen, I've tried to choose, choose um, modern and so these two are more modern. I show that uh, serif font still has a place in modern society, and this one, uh, the Bologna Festival, is 2012, but also. Uh, has an air of elegance and tradition. Uh, serif is often more legible and readable uh, than any other font. That's why you see a lot of novels, a lot of uh, big body copy is done in a serif font. Don't know why. It just I think it's because it's uh, copied from um, Calligraphy that it just it must just lend itself to that a bit better. Um, so I've picked out three big hitters in the serif in the serif world. So Bembo is, uh, was made in 1495, and this is possibly one of the oldest fonts that we still use today. Um, it's quite an aggressive Berlin font, it's quite nice. You see this in a lot of books, a lot of first edition books. Um, so I've, what I've done on, on every category that I've done, I've chosen cover fonts, why they're good and why they're timeless. Um, this, this particular font is Timeless because it's classical, it's elegant, elegant, it's got confident lines, and like all good fonts, it's a cheeky little ascender that just goes a little bit further than the ascender line. They all, all the ones I've picked seem to have this uh, cheeky ascender, it's just, it's just nice. So the second one we're going to talk about is uh, Garamond, and this is uh, Claude Garnard, or Claude Garnard, this guy on the right, um, and he made a name for himself in 1540 um, when he was commissioned by King Francis I to create a font, and this is the font he came up with again, with the cheeky ascender. So the king liked it. Yeah. Um, so why did this last? Uh, why has this lasted? And I believe. It's because, as opposed to Bembo, it looks a bit more sharp, but this one's quite a, a nice, smooth, rounded font. And this is actually the font that we use today, we still use this one today, and the font that we use today is exactly the same as the font that they used back then. It's not changed or been edited, it was Gary Callum's work, which is quite impressive. Uh, the next one I'm going to talk about is Bedoni. And the reason I chose this one is because it's staggering to think it was designed in 1798. Uh, so this, originally designed in 1798, released in 1830, uh, I made a mistake. So yeah, this was originally designed in 1798 by someone called Bedoni, surprisingly. Um, and I think this really emphasised at the time uh, the, ex the expressive nature of type, uh, the really high contrast that it has between uh, the thick stroke and the thin stroke. Um, this one doesn't have a cheeky ascender. That is interesting. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think this uh, um, stood the test of time due to its ability to portray fashion and a sense of luxury. And like I said, it was designed in uh, 1798, but then it wasn't really until 1930 in the Art Deco era when it truly took off, really, it got a second wind. Uh, and it was implemented a lot in that sort of art deco fashion and design. So I think we're going to move on to sans serif. 
Now this was designed by those, um, there was a type designer in the 18th century called Baskerville, an English guy that designed a font called Baskerville. And it was his like third grandson that came up with the sans serif uh, design. It didn't really take on until more recent times in the early 20th century. Um, so these sans serif are considered, believe it or not, sans serif are considered to be less legible than serif, uh, which is interesting because it's just uh, the pure form of letters. I think when we were all taught how to read and write, we were taught to do it in a sans serif style. Um, but these guys are these guys are formal, but friendly and modern. Obviously, it depends how it's used in the message it's saying, but in general. Um, freedom is in peril, will look a lot scarier in a uh, serif type, supposedly. So, uh, again, I'm not doing this for just the two big hitting, the two big hitting categories, really, which is uh, serif and sans serif. I'm going to mention three fonts. Uh, and these are the three fonts that I've chosen for uh, sans serif. Now, Futura is actually my favourite font in this uh, presentation. Um, it's just, it's, it's quite a nice font, it's basically based around shapes and symbols. Uh, there's a lot of circles uh, within the counter space. Uh, there's a lot of smooth lines, a lot of, a lot of fonts trying to copy uh, fonts like Futura, but don't really get it right, I don't think. Uh, this one is based on circles, sharp points, the end at the bottom of the end goes right down to the baseline. And uh, this little crossbar on the F comes right the way across. I think it's just a nice touch. Um, and Wes Anderson, uh, you might have seen Futura in all the Wes Anderson films, he's obsessed with Futura. Um, and it was designed by Paul Renner at the time of Bauhaus, so it sort of fits in with that Bauhaus movement. He wasn't part of Bauhaus actually, but he was part of that sort of era in time, and it's actually more expressive. Now, a bit of tight banter for you. Accidents grotesque. A sans serif typeface walks into the street and is hit by a bondage truck. The carnage is grotesque. Accidents. I genuinely was laughing at that. So that was designed in. This is actually another amazing story. This was designed uh, in 1896 and is over a century old. You'd put that up there with modern looking fonts today, I think. This was designed in that Swiss, uh, in that Swiss design era, uh, and is everywhere. You can't move for Helvetica. I actually don't like designing with it because I think it's cheating. I think it, it suits all areas, all... It suits everything. It's a bit of a cheat. Someone once said, I was trying to find out who came up with this robot, I think it's a really good one. And it was uh, Helvetica uh, is the sweatpants of typefaces. Because you could, you could put that on anything, really. It's fantastic. Um, so you basically dominated 50 for Earth, designed for the last 50 years. Um, it was designed by Mac Meadinger and Eduardo Hoffman. Um, yeah, it's, it's still, still amazing today and timeless really. Um, but why is it timeless? Uh, was a question I was trying to find out. Uh, and it's all, all weights as well, often you get a lot of fonts that are nice in a couple of weights and not nice in others, but this seems to be no matter how thick or thin it is. I think that was proven by uh, Apple picking it up for their iOS system. And um, yeah, it's in all weights, it's beautiful. Uh, and I think it's the all terminations of fonts 
all the terminals either finish on a 90 degree, so they either finish horizontal or vertical. Uh, I think it adds a lot of uh, geometry to it, but also there's a big curve. It doesn't come across as being angular, it's, it's a mod one. Um, there's a lot of, it's not actually the typeface you're looking at really, it's the negative spaces around the type that are, uh, that are beautiful. The end, for example, that's a teardrop. Uh, and I think it all sort of blends together to make something that really is timeless, I think. I'm going to talk about uh, script font, something that obviously back in the day with the scribes, um, when Gutenberg came across, that's, he sort of mimics the scribes' handwriting, but I think script font has really set fire in, um, truly really come to the sort of mainstream in the last, I'd say, 10 years maybe. Um, and I think that's a lot of that's down to technological advances and digital design. Um, it's a lot easier now for designers and artists to make their own font that I think um, if anyone can do it, you don't have to have the knowledge of a typesetter or a typographer, you can you know how to write and you know how to use a brush or whatever, you can make these fonts and if you put a bit of attention to them then you can really make them look good. There's a lot of good things that you don't get in serif and sans serif, uh, often linked characters, that's quite a nice touch. As we spend in crisp brochures, that's a nice touch when the, the headers link. Uh, there's a lot of freedom to do whatever you want, really. You can create fancy swirls, join descenders and descenders. There's a lot of spicy things going on there. <laughs> <laughs> so I was sort of harking on about how type affects um, society still, and I think this, I think uh, script fonts especially have whole um, weight uh, in this argument. Um, this Levi was in 1990, so it, it have been around for a while, but I think due to um, a lot of graffiti and urban and street influence in mainstream media, media I think this sort of style, this sort of grungy style is really taken off. So next, we're going to talk about uh, specialist fonts, and we heard from Neville Brody before, his uh, doom and gloom. Uh, so see if he can put his money where his mouth is and he designed the uh, Channel 4 typeface. Uh, so bear in mind that he had, he set himself up for a big four really with that quote, so let's see if he delivers. Wednesday at 8. Next up on Channel 4. Monday at 10 on 4. So 
so I, th I think um, with the monumental task that he had ahead of him, uh, he has to, to come up with a typeface that suits all the Channel 4 collateral and gives across um, like a unique brand and a unique tone of voice. I think he really hit the nail on the head there. I think there's a lot to be said for simplicity. He's not reinvented the wheel, uh, he's took a font and uh, bastardised it. printing with the Gutenberg press and uh, lithography and stuff, they were used for to put like lead ornaments in and just make the pages look a little bit better. Um, but I think we've sort of evolved into something a bit, I'm not that sure what it is, but it's uh, like emojis sort of hark back to this sort of language. Welcome back. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I thought it was really fascinating when I saw it for the first time. I hope you maybe learned some stuff in there. There's a lot of the kind of history stuff that I I didn't know anything about. Most of that kind of that kind of stuff, um, yeah. and just some of the you know some of the phrases like serif and sans serif and stuff. And people people chuck them around all the time. Not everyone actually knows where they come from or why they are what they are or you know. Yeah, I, th I think the one that stands out for me is leading. We talk about leading, which is the space between the sentences, and that actually came from blocks of lead that were used for the space. Yeah. I think that's really, really cool. Good. And there's lo there's loads of stuff like that that um, you'll find out. Well, you found out. You found out. It's still the air. You've yeah. just watched it. Um, so yeah, that was uh, yeah really really interesting. So yeah, hope you enjoyed it. Um, we'll be back uh, next week with um, another what the fox. I believe next week we're going to be talking to Joe a little bit more about social and some things like that. So, uh, yeah, uh, we'll see you next time. See you later.